You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, church. Well, if you will, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, that's perfectly okay. It's page 585 in your pew Bible right in front of you. 585. Um, so, so just to kind of give you guys a lay of the land here, this is going to be our last sermon in Isaiah just for the month of December. We're going to be taking a break and doing a little Christmas series uh, to just kind of center our hearts around the birth of Jesus. And so we figured, and we actually didn't really time this like this on purpose, but what a better way to end or the, the, the series in Isaiah, just before we go into a season of tidings and comfort of, uh, and joy with global destruction. So that is what we're doing this morning, the end of the world as we know it. You know, over the last 25 years or so, it seems as if the entertainment world has had a fascination with the end times. This is evidenced by the great number of apocalyptic movies that have come out over the last few decades. Whether it be Deep Impact, Armageddon, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, Interstellar, The Core, all of these movies follow the same basic premise. The world is either on fire or on the edge of being on fire, and humanity needs to figure out a way to stop it. Now, even though these movies tell basically the same story and show basically the same terrific scenes of global destruction, people will still pay good money to see a new vision of how the world is going to end, right? We all do this. Why? Because we are fascinated with the end times. We just want to see things blow up. And I think one of the reasons why we're so fascinated with the end times is because we all instinctively know that our world is on borrowed time. We all instinctively know that the current physical climate of the world and the current spiritual climate of the world is unsustainable. We all instinctively know that the ruin of planet Earth isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And you know what? Our instincts are spot on. It says in Daniel 12, 1, and there shall be, there shall be, in other words, it's coming, a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. So church, whether you call it the apocalypse, Armageddon, doomsday, or the last hurrah, time and time again, the Bible teaches that there will come a time when the world faces unprecedented global destruction on an unimaginable scale. It will be a catastrophic season that will signify the end of the world as we know it. Jesus said in Mark 13, 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Happy Thanksgiving, church! The Bible refers to this period as the tribulation. And unlike the movies, there will be no human power nor wisdom that will be able to stop it. However, even though we cannot stop it, we can prepare ourselves for it with knowledge from God's word. Knowledge that reveals everything we need to know about Earth's final days. And while this knowledge doesn't have the power to prevent the tribulation from happening, it does have the power to prevent you or I from ever experiencing it if we respond accordingly. And so this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we're going to find Isaiah foreshadowing the events surrounding the end times. And it's through our study that we're going to be reminded of an important, yet very encouraging truth to remember if you're a believer, and it's this. Those who know Jesus need not fear his judgment. 
So keep that in mind as we work through this passage today. Let's pray and ask God's blessing over our time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Isaiah. It's so rich and full of, God, so many different things that are beneficial uh, for us today. And God, I just pray that as I speak on this, let's just call it a difficult topic. It could be a discouraging topic. I pray, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and that the people that you've brought here this morning would be encouraged to know that, Lord, in the midst of all the, the destruction that's coming to the world, that you are sovereign and in control and that your plan is to make all things new again. And so, Lord, help us to be mindful of that reality as we work through today's passage. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump into today's study, let me just provide a bit of context for what's happened since the last time we were in Isaiah, because excuse me, Pastor Dave preached on chapter 13 of Isaiah uh, last week. And so in chapters 14 through 23, basically we have the prophet Isaiah pronouncing God's specific judgment on various nations for their sin and rebellion. Well, in chapter 24, the prophet switches gears and he pronounces God's general future judgment against the whole world for its sin and rebellion. It's for this reason that chapters 24 through 27 in Isaiah is often referred to as Isaiah's apocalypse. However, this doesn't mean that all hope is lost. As is often the case in the Bible, judgment precedes blessing. Even though Isaiah's prophetic message is very bleak and it reveals how this present world will end, it also offers a sense of surety and hope for those who believe in Jesus. And so found within today's passage are five factors concerning the end of the world. Let's begin by looking at the first, and it's simply this, the reality of the end of the world. The reality. Look at verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. And as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. So on March 26, 2000, a controlled demolition company was hired to implode the 25,000-ton kingdom in Seattle. And remarkable about the event was the extreme measures taken to ensure that no one was hurt. In other words, engineers checked and rechecked the structure. Several blocks around the kingdom were evacuated. Safeguards were set in place to stop the countdown at any moment. All the workers were individually accounted for by radio before the explosives were detonated. And a large public address system was used to announce the final countdown before destruction. In short, the company took every reasonable measure and more to warn people of the impending danger. Well, in the same way, the Bible teaches that there will be an implosion of the world. And just like the engineers who blew up the kingdom, God the Father has taken every reasonable measure and more to warn people of this impending danger. In fact, he spared no expense in making sure that everybody has a chance to get out safely. Today's text represents one of his many warnings concerning the end of the world as we know it. Now, we know that this text refers to the end of the world because the prophet Isaiah mentions the word earth 16 times in this chapter. This tells us unequivocally that the primary focus of this chapter isn't the destruction of one nation, but the entire 
world. And so the prophet opens by telling us that the Lord will cause it to happen. He also says, for the Lord has spoken this word. In other words, in eternity past, God purposed that there would be a time of judgment when the whole earth would be laid waste and its inhabitants will scatter. And his purposes cannot be thwarted. What the Lord says he will do, he will do. And again, this terrible judgment isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Isaiah 13, 11 says, I will punish the world for, for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So this, of course, begs the question, when will this time of judgment occur? Anybody want to be around for this? No? Good. That means there's no weirdos here today. Well, the truth is, we don't know for sure when it's going to happen. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That expression, day of the Lord, is a reference to this coming judgment. It will come like a thief in the night, very unexpected. But that being said, the Bible does give us signs that show the tribulation period is drawing near. Just signs to be aware of, but not to freak out over, just to be aware of. Based upon his observations in Matthew 24, David Jeremiah notes some of these signs. He said, there will be deception by false teachers, dissension among nations, devastation of food supply, disease in various places, disasters around the world, death for the sake of Christ, disloyalty among friends, delusions associated with false religions and drug use, and defection from the faith and goodness. Now, church, even though we don't know when God's judgment will happen, and even though many of these signs have been occurring for thousands of years in some way, shape, or form, what we do know is that we've seen all of these signs increasing over the past decade, have we not? We also know that we are one day closer to God's judgment today than we were yesterday. And so, therefore, we would do well to live in light of this reality. Now, here's the deal. There's people that freak out, well-intentioned well believers that freak out over prophecies and signs and all this kind of stuff. Why? My question is, why? Our job is not to freak out over that stuff. Our job is to represent Jesus. And when the trumpet sounds, get out of here. That's, that's, that's our job. So, so and, and, and which brings me to my next point. The blessed assurance for believers is that we don't need to fear this coming judgment. Revelation 3.10 says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. You see, God promises that all believers will be delivered before the tribulation period occurs. And we call this divine deliverance the rapture. Now, on a side note, there's this, there's this expression, I will keep you. And some, some people say, well, keep you could also mean preserve you through the tribulation time. And so some people say, oh, there's not going to be this time where God takes believers out of the world. The problem with that interpretation is that would make God out to be a liar. Because later on in Revelation, we see believers getting rocked. Tribulation believers getting rocked and persecuted uh, and dying for their faith. So the Lord is not keeping the church during that time if this promise is, means preserving. So it really means to take away. See, the rapture is an imminent event that could happen at any moment when the Lord will snatch away all believers from the earth before bringing down his righteous judgment. He will resurrect all believers who have died and give them glorified bodies, and he will take them from the earth. And then he will also take all living believers from the earth as well. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive to our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then he closes by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, Paul told the church to encourage one another for good reason. Because even though there was nothing they could do to prevent God's judgment, they weren't going to be around to experience it. And therein lies the encouragement for you and I today. If you're a believer, then you have nothing to fear. But if you're not a believer, then as it stands right now, you have everything to fear. The tribulation period is specifically reserved for those who reject Christ and live in sinful rebellion. The good news is that you can avoid this judgment by accepting Jesus. It's not too late. And this leads us to the second factor concerning the end of the world, the reason for the end of the world. Why is God going to do this anyway? Why is he going to bring judgment? Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Why? For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? And we see it's, it's there because of sin. It says, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. You know, in today's world, every car has lights that tell us when something's wrong in our car. There's the check engine light, check tire light, check oil light, check the cooling system light. In fact, there's check lights for just about everything. Now, the reason why we have these lights is to prevent something bad from happening to us. They're there to warn us that something's wrong, and we should get to the mechanic as soon as possible to address the issue. The problem is that many people ignore those lights for way too long, and in doing so, they eventually find themselves dealing with a much bigger problem. Any, any procrastinators with the, the check engine lights in the room? Sure. Yeah. Church, the reason why the Lord purposed to bring judgment to the whole world is because despite repeated warnings, many people have chosen to ignore and reject the light. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You see, humanity chose to rebel against God by blatantly rejecting his law. The Bible calls this sin. Sin is anything that we say, think, or do that's contrary to God and his ways. And since God is holy, he cannot have anything to do with sin. In fact, he cursed sin, which is why sin must be punished. However, God, in his infinite love and compassion and mercy toward us, gives us repeated warning lights to come to him and address the issue. And for those who come to him, he promises to fix them up and make them new creations. Unlike the mechanic, he doesn't take advantage of us. He gives us everything we need. Their sin will no longer be held against them, those who come to Jesus. They will never have to experience God's ultimate judgment in this world or the world to come. That's the offer. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, and when Jesus says truly, truly, he really means it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. However, for those who choose not to come to Christ, for those who choose to live in rebellion and ignore his light, 
for those who choose to embrace their sin over their Savior, they will face God's judgment. And if you happen to be alive when his earthly judgment comes, the results will be devastating. Look at the third factor concerning the end of the world, the reaction to the end of the world. Follow along with me, verses 7 through 13. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine, all joy has grown dark, the gladness of earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered in ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. When the olive tree is beaten, as in the gleaning, when grape harvest is done. You know, one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone is called Time Enough at Last. The episode centered around, anybody remember this episode, by the way? Probably the greatest ending to an episode of anything ever. And I'm going to give it all away, so spoiler alert. Uh, the episode centered around, uh, around a man named Henry Bemis, who was a banker who loved reading books. And one day while working inside the bank vault, there was this large explosion, and it knocked Henry Bemis unconscious. When he woke up and emerged from the vault, Henry found the bank demolished and everyone in it deceased. Leaving the bank, he saw that the entire city had been destroyed. And after a while, he realized that a nuclear war had devastated the earth, and he was the lone survivor. One plot description notes, finding himself alone in a shattered world, Bemis succumbs to despair. And as he, as he prepares to take his life using a revolver he had found, Bemis sees the ruins of a public library in the distance. Investigating, he finds that the books are still intact. All the books he could ever hope for are his for the reading, and there was time enough to read them without interruption. With his despair now gone, Bemis contentedly sorts all of the books as he looks forward to reading for years to come with no obligations to get in his way. However, just as he bends down to pick up the first book, he stumbles and his glasses fall off and shatter. In shock, he picks up the broken remains of the glasses, without which he is virtually blind, and then bursts into tears. In utter despair, Henry finds himself surrounded by books he can now never read in the Twilight Zone. Church, Henry Bemis tried seeking relief in the remains of a ruined world and was left wanting. And in the same way, this will be the experience of all those living during the tribulation period, only much, much worse. According to Isaiah, during this time of judgment, the world will be completely broken. All gladness will cease. All joy will grow dark. And there will be little to no relief. Wine will not satisfy. Music will not lift spirits and fear will prevail. Life will be dismal. In fact, it will be so bad that Revelation 9, 6 says, and in those days people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. However, even in the midst of total chaos and despair, there are glimmers of God's mercy and grace in this passage. Look at verses 14 through the first part of 16. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. 
you know, we just got done celebrating Thanksgiving, and I'm sure all of you guys have your own traditions and certain foods that you like to have at the table, and, uh, and I do as well. And the first time I ever had Thanksgiving up at my wife's parents' house, my, my in-laws, uh, everything was hunky-dory until they served this one peculiar item along with everything else. Oysters. Oysters at Thanksgiving. Now, to me, now whatever, I'm not going to judge or anything, but to me, oysters don't seem to fit within the context of a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah? Would you guys agree with me on that one? No? You don't want to get in between me and my wife? That's fine. <laughs> well, this is kind of like the oyster in Isaiah 24. Because at first glance, these verses, these hopeful verses, seem peculiar and out of place given the context of this passage. Here we have Isaiah pronouncing judgment upon the whole earth, and right in the middle of it all, we have God's people just singing praises. Which, of course, begs the question, what gives? Well, as I already mentioned, during the rapture, God is going to remove his people before the great tribulation begins. However, during the tribulation, there will be many people who will respond to the gospel and come to faith in Jesus. And so evidently, and this is just the prevailing theory, but evidently the prophet Isaiah was picturing these tribulation believers, people that became believers during the tribulation, praising God in the midst of the judgment. And, and, and really, this, this interpretation makes a lot of sense when you consider this scene and you compare it to the scene that John described in Revelation 7, where he says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, and this is all during the tribulation, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So all this to say, even in the midst of terrible judgment, God will provide second chances for salvation. And for those who choose to embrace this second chance, even, the, even though they're going to be going through a lot of this judgment stuff, they're going to still be able to sit back and praise God for his righteous judgment during this difficult time. And so, church, this brief interlude in chapter 24 is a welcome relief considering Isaiah's grim message. However, it is a short-lived relief. The prophet quickly changes the scene and shifts back to visions of the unprecedented calamity that would come to the world. Visions of calamity that, even for this mighty prophet of God, was too much to bear. And this leads us to the fourth factor concerning the end of the world, the ruin at the end of the world. Uh, second half of verse 16, start there. But I say, wait, I waste away, I waste away. Woe was me, for the traitors have betrayed. With the betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. How y'all doing out there? Everybody encouraged so far? Doing good? Great. You know, there's this old saying, you, you can run, but you can't hide. And I'm always fascinated with, like, the origin of stuff. 
And so I looked up the origin of this saying. And this saying originated actually in the, in the United States, America, in the 1940s, and is attributed to boxing legend Joe Lewis, describing his looming fight with heavyweight champion Billy Kahn. I don't know who these guys are, but that's where this uh, thing came from. And so in essence, it means that you could try to escape your fear, but in the end, you must face it. In other words, running is futile. Well, the same is true when God brings judgment here on planet Earth. No one will be able to escape or hide his wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3 says, For the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. One of the reasons why no one will be able to escape God's wrath is because there's literally nowhere on earth to hide. How can hide from God? All-knowing God. Nowhere to hide. Every square inch of the world will be impacted by God's judgment. In fact, Scripture teaches that at least five natural disasters will occur during the tribulation. There's going to be great earthquakes and darkness. Stars will fall out of the sky. Mountains and islands will move. The ocean will become blood. And freshwater supplies will become poisoned. Jesus said in Luke 21 in verse 11 and also in verses 25 and 26, he says, There will be great earthquakes and various famines, in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming into the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Needless to say, contrary to the song made famous by R.E.M., when it's the end of the world as we know it, no one living will feel fine. This includes even the most powerful men and women among us. Look at verses 21 and 22. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. You know, one of the most frustrating and discouraging aspects of life is seeing corrupt world leaders get away with it, right? Whether it be their power, their position, their lawyers, their money, it seems like the corrupt always get away. Here Isaiah reminds us that the day of the Lord will be a day of reckoning for all evil leaders. They will try to run and hide, but it will be an exercise in futility. Revelation 6 describes it this way, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In addition to all earthly forces of evil being punished, Isaiah also envisions a day when all spiritual forces of evil will be punished as well. One day God will imprison Satan and his fallen rebellious angels in a pit. He will sentence them to hell for eternity. And he will rid the world of sin once and for all. And therein, Church, lies our hope. The end of the world as we know it doesn't mean it's going to be the end of the world, period. God is going to make beauty out of the ashes after the tribulation period is over. God is going to make everything 
new. And this leads us to the fifth and last factor concerning the end of the world. It's the result of the end of the world. Look at verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Earlier this week, I heard author, Ron, I was listening to the radio, and I heard author Ron Hutchcraft tell the story about the good things that hurricanes do. The good things that hurricanes do. I'm sure if you've been, uh, you've experienced a hurricane, I'm, Maybe there's a lot, of, a lot of things that were not good about it, and, and which understandably so. But he had shared that Australian pine trees uh, had somehow taken root in a place in Florida that hosted attractive plants, which in turn attracted many beautiful birds and small animals. And, those, and as those pines grew and got tall, they literally created a canopy over those plants and blocked out the sun. And so as a result... What had once been a thriving area filled with plants and animal life became a stretch of sterile underbrush until a hurricane hit. The storm literally snapped the trees in two and did a lot of other terrible things. However, after the storm subsided, the sun began to shine on that area again. And it had become a beautiful park with pools and greenery and flowers and birds and vibrant wildlife. But it took a hurricane to make it happen. Church, sin is a lot like that Australian pine. It grows to the point where it completely ruins a once vibrant area of life. And unless it's dealt with severely, new life can never grow. The purpose of God's final judgment, listen, is not only to punish sin. That is a purpose, and it's a righteous purpose from a holy God. But it's not his only purpose. It's also to make a way for new life to grow. Life that will continue on forever and ever and ever and ever. Isaiah closes by reminding us that one day God is going to rule and reign on the throne in perfect righteousness. And eventually his rule and reign on planet earth will lead to a new heaven and new earth that will be completely devoid of sin, of sorrow, of pain, and of death. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Friends, this is the glorious fate for everyone who believes in the person and work of Jesus. So yes, God's judgment is coming to the world. But when that storm subsides, there will be eternal life and light and liberty for those who believe. And this leads us back to today's truth to remember. Those who know Jesus need not fear his judgment. We don't need to get all worked up about this if we know Jesus. And so in closing, allow me to give you just a few ways to prepare for the end of the world as we know it. First, I've heard it said that the best way to prepare for the tribulation is to make sure you're not around for it. In other words, you need to make sure that you're saved. Don't miss this. 
Friend, if you're not saved, then all this judgment is for you to fear. But if you're saved, you have nothing to fear. And to be saved is to admit that you're a sinner, repenting of your sin, asking God to forgive you, and then placing all of your faith and your security and your eternal life in Jesus. Believing in the person and work of Jesus. Believing that, that he came to this world and lived a perfect sinless life and died on a cross on your behalf. All of your sin was placed on him. That was the perfect sacrifice. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. He's a living God. And when you place your faith in Jesus, he promises to secure your soul for eternity. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Has eternal life. No doubting there. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. In case you didn't realize this, wrath is, is not a good thing. God's wrath on you is not a good thing, but all that could change to the act of belief. So friend, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus before, this opportunity may not come around again. I implore you, don't delay your decision. Scripture says that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you have any questions on what that means or if I didn't explain it clear enough to you or whatever, you can come forward and you can speak with me after the service. If you don't want to talk to me because I freak you out, you can come up here and grab one of these. Uh, these books, it's got the Gospel of John. It's got some important questions about salvation in there that you guys could take a look at. But please don't leave here without having security in your walk with Jesus. That's number one. Number two, for those who already believe, which is presumably most of, of you in this room, the best way for you and me to prepare for the end of the world is to get busy preparing others for it. Now more than ever before, Christians need to walk in obedience to God's commands and sound the alarm to our family and our friends and our loved ones before it's too late. Simply put, we need to get busy telling the world about Jesus. I like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, said, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Church, let today's message be our motivation to tell others to come back to God. Yes? And lastly, let us encourage one another in the Lord's return. Encourage one another, like Paul said. Many of us are here today facing a host of trials and discouragements. So reminding one another that the Lord is coming back and he's going to make things right and new, it provides a sense of peace and hope and reassurance to weary souls, doesn't it? And so that being said, I believe the closing benediction from Revelation 22 is fitting. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. I'd like to invite the praise team forward, along with the prayer team. And we're going to pray, and we're going to close by singing one more song. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. And God, your word is capable of doing a lot of things in our lives, God. Convicting us, rebuking us, teaching us, piercing us. But God, it's all for our betterment. And so as we look at Isaiah 24, we look at what appears to be his, his, 
his uh, prophecy of what's to come, future judgment. Lord God, I pray, it is my, my number one prayer that no one in this room will, will be around to face that judgment, that all would come to faith in Jesus Christ if they don't know you, that you would draw them to yourself today. I pray, Father God, that you would uh, strengthen us with the power of your Holy Spirit to, to prepare others for your coming judgment by telling them about Jesus. And I pray, Father God, that we would be an encouragement to one another, that when we're in the, in the, in the, in the muck and the mire, when we are in the miry clay, God, that just knowledge that you are coming back to make all things right and new. May that encourage our hearts and spirits as we move forward this day and every day. Thank you, God, for being sovereign and on the throne. And thank you for the blessed assurance that you are coming again. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.